I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, a guest host of CMAJ Podcasts, a general internist, and the Director of Programs in Wellness and Health Humanities at the Max Rady College of Medicine in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Today, I bring you a wonderful conversation I had with Dr. Alan Peterkin. Dr. Peterkin is a professor of psychiatry and family medicine at the University of Toronto. He's also an accomplished author of poetry, children's books, fiction, and more. He even ended up on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon because of one of his books. We talk about humanities and creative arts as applied to medicine. How much can creative arts and time for playfulness help balance out a stressful life? Can they enhance the practice of medicine? Dr. Peterkin shares why he thinks creative arts are essential. We hope you'll enjoy this conversation. So, Alan, what are some of your creative outlets? Well, I love music and uh, I love theatre. But personally, my own artistic practice is to write. And I like writing poetry, uh, creative nonfiction, and children's books. Tell me more about your children's books. Yeah, so when I was a resident, actually, all those years ago, I remember treating a little boy whose sister got cancer. And I just remember how he struggled. And I ended up writing a picture book called What About Me When Brothers and Sisters Get Sick. And we don't name the illness, so mm -hmm. it could be anything. It could be diabetes. It's just whenever the family attention shifts from, you know, shifts to the sick child and how the well children feel uh, really neglected. And, and uh, that book's been translated into Spanish and Korean and in a lot of children's hospitals. So that's really been a nice, uh, mm -hmm. nice thing. And then I did a really silly one with Kids Can Press about fridge art how kids can use uh, the fridge as a, you know, a place to hang all their art and magnets and stuff. And the one that's coming out with National Geographic this month, actually, is a dream journal. So kids sort of 8 to 13, a way of recording and interpreting your own dreams. And that was really fun to work on. You know, as I hear you talk, what strikes me is the shifting vantage points, you know, how you are a physician, but you're doing this work that looks at things through a child's eyes and through these other perspectives. And I wonder how you see that as relating to the interest and expertise that you've developed in narrative medicine. Well, it's all about story, isn't it? You know, everything comes back to, to story and how stories are are constructed. I, I think I really like picture books because there's an it's like poetry. There's an economy of words, and the words have to dance off the pictures and vice versa. So that there's a real discipline in writing picture books and writing poetry. But you know, regardless of of the medium, just finding you know new and interesting ways to tell tell stories, uh, and I think to engage kids in reading because you know I'm just appalled by all the being glued to the pads kind of things. So you've been here with us at the University of Manitoba for a few days, working with our faculty, working with our undergraduate students and residents. I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you think we can teach students and learners to work with stories. What What's the way that we begin to do that as educators? Well, I have to say, first of all, that I'm really glad to be here because I did my undergrad here. So it's, it's really terrific to be back. I mean, medicine is a storied enterprise. I think, you know, evidence-based medicine always taught us to look for what's generalizable so that a disease always presents this way. Uh, whereas, 
you know, um, narrative is about what's singular, what's particular, what's original, uh, what's unique to that person's experience of disease, which is their illness experience. So I think we convey to students that you, you know, part of your job as a physician, whatever your specialty, with the exception maybe of pathology, is that you have to, uh, well, maybe even there too. I mean, you have to uh, help uh, patients and their families make sense and make meaning of, of their illness experience. You have to be open to building that story over time with them. Um, and especially nowadays when there are so many chronic illnesses, we, we can't cure that many illnesses, um, that you do accompany them for long periods of time. And why wouldn't you want to know their story? And um, even bearing witness to their story in and of itself has value to the patient. Uh, even if you're not doing interventions. You raised a point about evidence-based medicine, and sometimes bringing this work to people, we encounter, as you and I have talked about, a tension between the evidence for work and you know what we feel in our hearts has a place in medicine and what viscerally we know um, belongs in our care of patients. Could you talk a little bit about the evidence that exists and the type of evidence it is for using this work in medical education? Sure. I mean, I think there's been a major disconnect because in the biomedical enterprise, research is quantitative. And by the nature of the work in the arts and humanities, quantitative research can't really capture what's happening in narratives and, and reports and, and patient interviews and so on. So you need qualitative research, which is completely neglected in our training and in most healthcare profession training. Um, so that's been the disconnect that we've been sort of uh, measured with a yardstick that doesn't reflect in any way the real work we're doing. Now, fortunately, that's shifting and there's really compelling evidence about the use of art, the arts with patients, the use with arts uh, with learners with respect to, uh, you know, empathy levels and reducing cynicism and preventing burnout. And I think that's one of the new developments, even in the last couple of years, is that we've been really trying to link the use of the arts and humanities to reflection, reflective capacity, reflexivity, and then, you know, which is the ability to stand back and, and really ask yourself what's happening and then modify accordingly. But the idea that a reflective capacity uh, also helps you prevent burnout. Um, you know, we know that reflective practitioners take better care of their patients, that their patients are more satisfied with that interaction. But we also have come to see that reflective practitioners um, take better care of themselves as well. So a while ago for one of these podcasts, I interviewed Ron Epstein, mm -hmm. and who you know. And Ron talked about the importance of having a practice, regardless of what that practice is in. And I wondered if you could talk for a moment about how having your creative outlets has helped you in your life and in your professional career. I think, you know, right through, and even in med student, uh, med school, uh, you know, you would encounter situations that were troubling or disturbing. And back in the day, you know, people didn't talk to medical students about the first time they witnessed a death or the first time they saw something really go wrong in the 
operating room, it just didn't get discussed. And so I used to write about it, you know, kind of write it as a story or as a journal entry. So I could kind of have it on the page and look at it and, and then sort of ask myself some questions. Um, so I think it certainly s- served as a processing kind of medium, but then it, it was the other types of writing were more about creativity and finding flow and, and finding pleasure. Um, and really following your nose with an interest. I mean, I, I wrote a cultural history on beards and facial hair, which was just sheer fun. But, you know, um, the idea of playfulness. And, and uh, you and I were talking yesterday about the absence of play in medicine, that play is not encouraged and creativity isn't seen as essential uh, in medicine. Whereas I would argue that, that medicine is both an aesthetic and a creative endeavor. So what are some of the more interesting outlets for creativity that you've seen among physicians that you've known? Well, so our program in Toronto has been sort of building and and uh, there's been this groundswell and the community keeps uh, growing. But we've got some physicians and students who are just crazy about improv and uh, stand-up comedy, and, and they're pursuing that. And, you know, on the pedagogic side, you could argue that Many times as a med student, you or even as a practitioner, you don't know what to say or do next. That's exactly what improv is about. So they're actually learning skills about thinking on your feet and thinking creatively on your feet. Um, but, um, you know, people pursuing athletics, pursuing music, uh, doing their own writing, be it, you know, uh, creative nonfiction, fiction, poetry, um, other forms of performance. You know, we have people who are very interested in photography as well and movement. Um, so pretty much all of the expressive arts, you know, colleagues and students are looking at. And the message we're conveying is, you know, don't think of that as an add-on. Uh, you know, back when I started my medical studies, if you were a musician, you were pretty much told, put that aside. And people did. They didn't pick up their violin for 10 years. Whereas now I think the message we're saying is that anything that brings you pleasure, that brings you enjoyment, that uh, uh, enhances your capacity to to connect with others, that's not an add-on. That should be intrinsic to your identity as a physician. And it'll also be protective to you as a person and a physician. So you're a psychiatrist. You're really well qualified to comment on this. How do you see creating something as being different from just doing something that a physician would normally go to do to relieve stress, like watching TV versus consuming media? Help help pinpoint that difference. Well, I think human beings like to build things and make things. I guess I could speak to... Um, I uh, co-led a therapeutic writing group for men and women living with HIV for 20 years. And so that's where they would write about their lives. So little mini memoirs week to week, their experiences. And what they said at the end, many of them, is that I stopped thinking of myself as a patient and I started thinking of myself as a writer. Hmm. You know, so the sense of mastery, of of the satisfaction of creating something you can look at and touch and modify and share, I think those are very healing enterprises. You know, I was struck by something at a meeting I attended the other day. We had representatives of our professional college there speaking to a group of us, and 
they were talking about, you know, from the perspective of the college, how you are always a doctor, no matter what you're doing. If you're butt in line in front of someone in the grocery store or you engage in a criminal act from the point of view <laughs> of the plane. college, you were on a plane. On my honeymoon, exactly. I had to intervene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, you're a doctor and that must always be at the forefront. And it sort of struck me the difference, you know, between that and what you just said and something that you and I heard in um, a class that we were co-teaching this week about a student who said they'd put their, you know, sketchbook aside for the last 10 years and how all these other elements of the identity seem at risk of floating away and this doctor identity being the one thing that Grounds yeah, I mean, I, I certainly don't feel that way myself. Yeah. Like, I think I'm not even sure doctor would be in the first three things of if I had to describe myself, you know? I mean, I take, I love my profession. I think of it as a vocation, but I think it's a mistake to, to make people choose. We are multiple. We, we all have different roles and identities as family members and community members and so on and, and, uh, people with political positions and creative positions and so forth. I mean, I guess what they're talking about is medical legally and professionally you, you know you're there you've yeah. got to step in but i would say why choose why not be an artist who is a doctor or a doctor who is an artist you yeah. get to choose which of your identities you view as more central yeah. but they're not incompatible yeah. and I, that really is the message of the medical humanities is that these are not incompatible they're enriching and and mutually nourishing <laughs> so you've done a lot of work around identity formation and i wonder if you could talk about the importance during the formative professional years, undergraduate and postgraduate, of keeping a hand in the things that you love and make you human. It really is about balance, you know. The talk I gave yesterday was about sort of, you know, we always used to talk about physician impairment, and then we talked about burnout, then we talked about wellness and balance, and we talked about resilience. And I've been raising the question, why not talk about physician happiness or medical student happiness? I mean, that has been so absent in the discussion for all these years. Um, and, you know, we turn to, to positive psychology and people like Martin Seligman, who say that um, for a happy life, and, you know, again, happiness is a transient state. We're not happy 100% of the time. But you need pleasure and you need purpose. Now, I think as doctors, we're, we're given a lot of purpose. We, you know, we know why we're doing the work. Most of us find meaning in our work. But you also need pleasure. And that would be very different for any of us. What brings you pleasure? You know, uh, collecting anti-trains might be the source of joy for one colleague. Scaling Everest might be the other. Um, you know, doing volunteer work in a social justice cause. Um, that the idea that something that makes you f- feel your life has meaning maybe something bigger than you as well, but that you, something that, that you find beautiful and, and uh, engaging and interesting and provocative and challenging. You know, uh, I think we'd all define pleasure differently, but I think we all know it when we've <laughs> encountered it or, <laughs> yeah. you know, carved out room for it. In a Grand Rounds that you did this week, you shared a list of very provocative questions that uh, come from Dr. Tate Shanafelt's work. Mm. And I wondered if you um, could highlight a few of the important questions that have been helpful to you along the way as you kept or moved back towards balancing your own professional life? Well, you know, I think uh, it's quite an interesting list, but it, it asks you things like, where are you irreplaceable? And 
you know, to whom are you giving short shrift in your life because of your medical identity? Is it your kids, your spouse, those kinds of things? I think those are really pertinent questions. Where you want to be in five years, what you would have done differently about last year. These are forms of reflection about um, meaning and connection in your life. It's very easy for doctors to go on autopilot, you know, to just do the work and not even know that they're burning out. And I think what the medical humanities, the health humanities bring to the profession is the, you know, you, you read a good play, you look at uh, a movie or, or uh, read some poetry or, or fiction. You're having to challenge your assumptions, your prejudices, your blind spots. But at the same time, you're exposed to a moral universe in that text. And you have to kind of reassert your own values. So I think what that, that scale you're talking about is really getting in touch with your values, what you think is important as a human being uh, who is in relationship both in and out of, of your work. Um, and I think it's worthwhile checking in on your values. A lot of the values we have we've inherited as children and some no longer suit, right, or, or don't apply. Some of them are enduring. Um, sometimes we're looking for a new sense of, of value, um, and that takes sort of deep reflection. I wonder if, thinking back, if you can identify any particularly powerful moments that you have had as an educator around using the health humanities. Well, I think I would get back to the word play, that you're creating a space where unexpected things can happen sparks of creativity, moments of sharing, perhaps even more personal information in a boundaried, safe place. But really, it's about giving the students a place where they can think outside the box. And, you know, for those who argue that creativity doesn't matter in medicine, you just have to look at any innovation in medicine, you know, any new drug, any new surgical procedure, any new intervention, any new tool. It was someone who, who worked day in and day out with that problem, but, but thought outside the box and came up with a creative solution. So um, I think this generation of learners is, is very visual. I mean, I think quick moving too, which can sometimes be a, a problem. But uh, they're immersed in, in story and texting and sharing stories. So they're, they're open to this. Um, but I think it's just about giving them permission to play, to make mistakes. So, for example, in the course you teach, I was sitting there yesterday on graphic uh, medicine, you know, you got them drawing panels and lo and behold, they're not good at it day one, you know, whereas in medicine, you, you come to be very good at things. When you take on uh, an artistic expression, you have to be humble. You have to say, this is a craft like any other. I, I've got to take the time to really explore this and to be good at it or not be good at it, but not to judge it, to, to just sort of see where it takes you. And that's very counter to kind of the super organized life you have a, as a medical student. Well, it was kind of poignant in that class, wasn't it, how uh, one of our students was talking about trying to explain to friends outside of medicine and even to family members the value of this work, even to those individuals that seem so discordant that we'd be talking about art or comics or texts in the setting of medical education. But here's back to your question about research. So, you know, uh, I know you've done this here at Manitoba, but we, we um, have partnerships uh, with the McMichael Art Gallery and the AGO, and we take students and residents to go learn how to read paintings. But um, places like Harvard have, have shown that their students' diagnostic skills 
improve after courses like that because they're really learning how to look and how to see. We call it visual literacy. But our predecessors used a lot of visual literacy to diagnose things. I mean, we use a lot of investigations. But the idea of really seeing and reading nonverbal cues so that you've given a patient information, but you actually see what they're doing with their body and their face, that's nonverbal information, but it's vital to your alliance, you know, to your ability to collaborate. So, yeah, there, there certainly are skeptics. And I, I think that is very Cartesian. It goes back to, you know, either art or science. But, but um, here we are. Medicine is a science, but it's also an art. It always was. So we know that this work is present now in medical education at both the undergraduate and postgraduate level. But let's imagine that we have someone listening to this podcast who works in a private clinic in a small community, and they're intrigued, and they want to bring this content and this concept into their clinical practice, into their relationships with their peers, um, to their cohort. How can they do that? What? Where's the place to start? Well, I think you want to look for your tribe. Mm. <laughs> You've got to find who around you is interested in this, has an artistic practice, um, has an interest in, in the humanities, you know, or a scholarship, or, you know, before they entered medicine, came from philosophy and so on. So, you know, you want to find out who those people are. I would invite them to join the Canadian Association for Health Humanities, C-A-H-H, uh, which was just formally formed last year, but it's based on uh, a conference we've been holding for 10 years, yearly, called Creating Space, which is all about the arts, the humanities. So we get clinicians of all stripes, we get uh, performers, artists, social scientists, uh, English professors, etc., etc., etc. So this is sort of the community in Canada. So, you know, to check out that website, cahh.ca, because there are curricula there, there, syllabuses, other resources, people you can contact, a listserv, um, just to find out uh, who's doing what. And what's wonderful about the Canadian health humanities community is that people are so generous. We're not that big. And uh, we've also had to struggle collectively to have any status at our medical schools. So uh, it's a very warm, accepting and, and generous community, particularly around resources. Ellen, I'm also thinking back to the article that you wrote for the BMJ about the strategies for starting uh, these programs up at a at a person's local institution. Any of those you can apply to individuals outside of the academic setting? Well, I think one of our very initial strategies was precisely around community. So find out who's doing what. Mm -hmm. You know, put out some feelers, um, follow some leads. Um, I think that's, that's probably key. And then just do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, have a lunch and learn, have a journal club where you're talking about a poem or a novel instead of a, you know, a JAMA article. Schedule an event where a bunch of you go to the local theater and then talk about the play after, mm -hmm. you know, to, to just create events. Um, and, and that's how your community grows. As I say, just in particular, find out what you love, find a way of, of pursuing it, and then drawing people who also like it to you. So I've written about this before, and so have you. The people who say, you know what, I had a practice, I would love to have a practice again, but I just don't have time. Yeah. How do you respond to those individuals? Well, it is tough. You know, people with young families, people with difficult call schedules. 
I think, you know, I can't remember who it said it. It might have been Marx, but, you know, freedom is the understanding of necessity. Once you know what you must have, you're free to do anything else. So the idea that adding it to your list of priorities, and it could be in snippets, it could be little journal entries, uh, it could be planning that movie night with your family, it could be joining a book club. But, you know, I think once you know that it, it's essential to kind of feeding your soul, if you want, that you'll you'll find a way. And and again, it can be just stolen moments at the beginning, moments of mindfulness, right? Of just checking in mm-hmm. with yourself. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I? What's my body doing? What am I hungry for? And then bit by bit, carving room for it, negotiating with your center, uh, or where you're working, your clinic, your hospital, um, you know, around sabbaticals, around half days off, around uh, more use of conference time. All those things are are ways of kind of keeping it front and center. Something else you and I were talking about the other day is the element of surprise and the unexpected things that sometimes unfold when you begin this work at your own institution. And people that you might think beforehand would have no interest in what you're doing or no um, tendency to support the work often just come out of nowhere and happen to be your biggest champions or the people who just have a profound belief that this work matters. It's, you know, it's often generational. A few generations back, um, you hid what you did on the side, yeah. you know, if you were a musician or it was thought to be kind of superfluous and, and self-indulgent. Um, that That's not the case. And I think that's the other importance of community. When you find other people who've suddenly started playing the piano again, it, it, it sort of gives you permission uh, to do the same thing. And even the skeptics, you know, they love movies, they're readers, um, they've traveled, they, they may love, you know, food and cooking, they, they, they have passions of their own. Um, and it's not such a big leap to sort of say, well, I have a passion for this, and these people have a passion for that. And so, of course, it has value. Alan, you're also the only physician I know who has been a guest on Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> That's right. Well, so years ago, I was, I really wanted to write a cultural history. Uh, I just, I find them interesting to read and I wanted to try my hand at writing one. And back in the day, this is almost 20 years ago, everything had been done, even, you know, uh, the biography of, of pencils, like anything you could think of. But facial hair had not been done. Beards, mustaches, sideburns, stubble, the whole bit. And uh, my interest was sparked by the fact that that was the when the real wave of everybody growing beards and mustaches happened, right? Sort of post-grunge, everybody started having goatees, etc. So that was what I chose. And I wrote this book called 1,000 Beards, and it did extremely well. And uh, lo and behold, uh, Jimmy Fallon decides that he wants to grow a mustache, and he needs a consultant. So uh, he's been aware, there's a book on mustaches too in the same series. So he was aware of my work and he flew me down and uh, (laughs) I I sort of consulted on his mustache growth, as did the audience. I mean, they applauded for different styles and uh, it, it was fun. And I, you know, I almost didn't do it. But I just thought this is just so silly. Why wouldn't you do it? It's it's fun. And that's back to my point about sort of fun and playfulness. And you don't have to be the serious psychiatrist uh, day in and day out. This was, this was like an opportunity and a fun thing. And, and so I went for it. 
So we've talked about visual art, we've talked about theater and narrative in medicine. Could you say a little bit about music and how sure. you think music can contribute to the well, lives I, of doctors? I, I, my father was a family doctor and had an encyclopedic knowledge of classical music. So, I mean, I grew up really bathed in, in music. And I came to realize that, that that was his way of reflecting. You know, that brain was wired for music and sort of deep... Uh, relaxation and, and reflection and renewal through music. So I had a good example with my dad that that it could do that. So I, I, I think certainly as, as something beautiful, it, it allows you to recharge. There's terrific research coming out about the use of music with patients with, with strokes and Parkinson's and, and Alzheimer's. So there are clearly growing clinical uses of it that I think um, are quite exciting and would excite our, our learners. Um, and then, you know, when you think of the musician as, as physician, and I know you're a musician, uh, I think of a story of, of a plastic surgeon I know in BC who studied piano in undergrad. And he told me, and I thought this was quite amazing, that his musical technique on the keyboard informed the economy of movement in the OR. Mm. So that, like, what a beautiful example mm -hmm. of bringing those mm -hmm. worlds together, not to kind of pragmatize them or, or instrumentalize them, mm -hmm. but, but that he found his sweet spot of mm -hmm. bringing those, those gifts together. So that's certainly something I hope to develop more in our own program in Toronto is more performances. A lot of our students are musicians, coffee houses, uh, people presenting about therapeutic uses of music, uh, and so forth. I think we saw something interesting in the last year or so coming out of Memorial University, a piece that made the news about how they are uh, putting an emphasis on accepting students from um, musical backgrounds, students who have undergraduate degrees in music, because they found that they do so well mm. in medicine. And as I recall, some of the element of discussion, they were the things that you said, they, they knew this concept of having a practice. Right. They knew the concept of getting feedback continually, you know, in order to refine one's they practice. Tremendous self-discipline. Yeah. And they listen. They're close listeners. Yeah. So those are certainly elements of a, phys a good physician. Exactly. So, Alan, what does health humanities bring to the medical curriculum that isn't there? It's a great question. You know, I think... Uh, you know, the health humanities are not so much about what we often in medicine call hard skills. They're about ways of thinking and feeling and experiencing the world. So, you know, when we do arts-based teaching, we emphasize things like critical thinking. You know, a lot of our learners have come right through science, say, and, and haven't really learned how to think critically. So we welcome that, you know, question our curriculum, question what's in it, what should be there, what's absent, um, how do we know what we know. So we really value critical thinking. We value reflective capacity. So the idea of learning how to reflect, and there are many ways to learn that, but, you know, about who you are as a person, what it means to be a doctor, and what your duty to your community is on sort of social justice grounds, you know? So reflective capacity. We talk about narrative competence. So, you know, as I said earlier, medicine is a storied enterprise. You have to be able to not take a history, but receive a story. And, um, you know, you'll, you, you and your patients will both benefit from building, co-constructing that story together over time. The collaboration will be deeper and probably less prone to error. 
Um, we talk about visual literacy, you know, which I mentioned earlier, the idea of learning how to see. And then linking all those things to wellness, that you're always, uh, you know, I think in my day, in your day too, it, there was this enforced stoicism where you ignored that you had a body, you know, you, you were told, well, you didn't have time to sleep, you didn't have time to go to the bathroom, you didn't have time to eat, you didn't have time to make love to your partner, so that you, you became sort of disembodied. And it's so ironic that we're working with and on people's bodies, you know, every hour of our, of our day, and yet we come to neglect our own and our kind of own embodied presence. So, you know, your emphasis on mindfulness and then um, putting wellness, you know, at the top of the, of the list, you can't take care of patients if you don't take care of yourselves. And I remember one of my really good profs at McGill said that to me. He said, you know, there are always two people to look after in the examining room, hmm. you know, the patient and you. And that was the first time I had heard it in all those years of training where you even, your well-being even came into the mix. Mm -hmm. So I think from the get-go, you know, with orientations, with, uh, you know, in humanity sessions, linking certain thoughts and observations to issues of wellness and issues of power. Medicine is rife with power and power dynamics and, and often abuses of power and how to unpack power. You know, these are all skills that are so protective. And, you know, what I found out is that when in Canada they were creating the CanMeds roles, there was a role about wellness and, and uh, resilience and balance, and they took it out. I think it's such a shame, but let's all bring it back. That was my conversation with Dr. Alan Peterkin, professor of psychiatry and family medicine at the University of Toronto and accomplished author and artist. Dr. Peterkin heads the program in Health, Arts, and Humanities at the University of Toronto. For more information, go to health-humanities.com. I'm Dr. Gillian Horton. Thank you for listening.